going to speak today is Leanne Wainwright. Leanne's a lecturer in art history at the Open University, a researcher on transatlantic connections between Britain and the Caribbean, currently leading several European-funded research projects bringing together artists, curators, cultural policymakers, etc. She's also involved in curating and was co-curator of a wonderful exhibition on Aubrey Williams, which is at the Walker uh, Art Gallery in, in Liverpool. She's recently been awarded a Philip Lieberhuhn Prize in Art History and is going to do future work on Dutch, Spanish and English-speaking Caribbean arti artists. Um, he's got a book out and he's too uh, modest to, to say it on his note here, but it's called... Um, I'll show you in a moment. He'll, he'll show us something. <laughs> but um, I'll leave you to Thanks, Alan. Great. Okay, this the moment I've been waiting for for two days. Um, that is to say, the opportunity to stand next to the heater. So, um, anyway, listen, thanks, uh, Celeste, Hannah, Ben, um, and our hosts at the University of Oxford, Alan as chair, um, and to all the speakers for um, stimulating so much fascinating discussion. So, in the years, years before and after, Guyana's independence from British rule in 1966, artists turned to the memory of an uprising in 1763 as the basis for some distinctive and controversial creative works. In 1960, the Guyana-born painter Aubrey Williams found in the story of the rebels an allegory for decolonization in the Caribbean, producing in response to the painting in Revolt. Revolt. Executed in Britain, where Williams was then domiciled, and given by him as a gift to the Guyanese people, it's now in the Guyana National Gallery in Georgetown. Standing as victor over a maimed white body, a stripped white woman and a helpless white man, Revolt is composed around a negative space of silhouette, the outline of an enslaved rebel brandishing a weapon. It captures that historic moment in 1763 when the enslaved leaders Cuffey, Akara, and Atta launched a revolt against the Dutch owners of Magdalenburg Plantation on the Cogne River in Verbiese, now a county of Guyana, but then a, Dutch, a separate Dutch colony. Killing the plantation manager and torching his house, almost a year of successful resistance followed in what was the fifth reported uprising to take place in the colony over the course of 30 years. A military unit headed by Cuffey took over a long list of further plantations as well as Fort Nassau, while Cuffey attempted by several written dispatches to strike a peace accord with General Hugenheim. But intransigent planters and the arrival of European troops led the enterprise to failure, with Cuffey's alleged suicide and the brutal punishment of all those who stood behind him. I'd like our attention to jump forward to 1960, initially, and a series of events that overlay that 18th century context. They begin with Aubrey Williams' production of Revolt, his painting, and its passage across the Atlantic in the form of a gift. The ensuing debacle over the work being withheld from public view, and the subsequent display of the painting for the first time after independence at a National Museum retrospective exhibition in 1970, selected by a subcommittee headed by Williams. And I'm going to touch again on those areas a little later on. 
Um, but suffice it to say, the politicization of the painting during the 1960s is itself significant, and it's a topic that I've written about in this book, <laughs> Timed Out, Art and the Transnational Caribbean. But for the purposes of, sort of now, this presentation, I'm at pains to show how that episode helped to put in place among artists a concern with the rebellion of 1763, which continued into the decade of the 1970s. And more than that, it's left a lasting impression, I think, on how Guyana looks back on its past of plantation slavery and resistance by visualizing and materializing that history. So the title of my presentation should really include the date 1976, when the Guyanese painter and sculptor Philip Moore, born in 1921, made his great public work, the 1763 Monument, popularly known as the Cuffey Monument. To properly understand Moore's handling of that same historical topic, the Berbice Rebellion, in part demands a formal analysis of the work, with its tubular limbs, its surface detailing and motifs, and its place among Philip Moore's other works of painting and sculpture. Here's an example um, painted in 1996. <coughs> it's very small for most of you uh, on this screen, but um, it's a piece entitled The Culture Center. There's a need to link those formal aspects to the social aspects of the monument, namely how it was embedded in some key relations among several artists who operated in post-independence Guyana. It's worth turning also to the party political, religious, and national interests that cluster around the monument. I'm gonna try and cover all that as briefly as I can. Philip Moore would tell the writer Andrew Sulkey in 1970 on the matter of his own development as an artist, I quote, I broke away from the rigid anatomy way of representing my figures and began to express myself freely with the encouragement of a Guyanese artist who'd gone up to London and come back, I mean Aubrey Williams, end of quote. In fact, Aubrey Williams initiated and coordinated the 1763 monument following a competition for the commission that ended when Carl Brudhagen withdrew his entry and Philip Moore, who was in fact not in the competition, was kind of approached to replace him. The artist, institution builder, and archaeologist Dennis Williams, no relation to Aubrey Williams, oversaw the casting process in what his daughter, Eve Williams, in her recent biography has described as the first homegrown, large-scale public monument in Guyana. The collaboration between these three Guyanese artists has a complex geography. Their transatlantic movements and that of the monument itself connected, connected the United States, Guyana, Jamaica, and Britain. Eve Williams records that, I quote, the artist Philip Moore was repatriated to Guyana from the United States to undertake this work. His 15-foot bronze statue weighing two and a half tons was cast for Guyana at Britain's famous Morris Singer foundry in Basingstoke, where the work was overseen by Dennis Williams in his role as director of art for the History and Arts Council of Guyana. The original maquette Moore had sculpted in wood was also cast in bronze, and later formed a central exhibit in Guyana's exhibit, uh, exhibition at the Jamaica Institute during Carafesta in 1976. Now that appearance in Guyana, in fact, you can see Philip Moore just in the background there, um, that appearance in Jamaica 10 years after Guyana's independence would identify the monument with a national school of Guyanese art. 
but it's a label that rather oversimplifies the kind of transnational production of the work through artistic collaboration. Um, and it's nonetheless typical of, of how in the early years of independence, the monument was pressed into national service. During a decade of initial optimism about the Cooperative Republic of Guyana, cited at the square of the revolution, the monument is in fact, I quote from its plaque, to the heroes of the 1763 revolution against forced labor and the plantation system. It simultaneously commemorated a kind of Marxian story of continuous struggle, resistance, and ensuing emancipation from slavery. Just as poignantly, its associations have stretched to include Guyana's decolonial beginnings, underlined by the fact that it was unveiled three days before the 10th year of independence from Britain, and that the anniversary of the 1763 uprising on February the 23rd was chosen as Republic Day. So how the monument came to be freighted with these and a further set of associations has much to do with what I suppose we might call it situatedness. What is to say, an intertwining of physical location, scale, and material form that allows the significant historical work that has been made to perform. The story of my own encounter with the monument was by glimpsing it from the upper floor of the National Gallery of Guyana in Georgetown, Castellani House it's called, where I'd meet and interview its director, Alfreda Bissemba, over the course of 2005. There's a clear, if oblique, view of it from her office, a room that may once have served as the bedroom of President Forbes Burnham, who unveiled the monument to the public. On closer inspection in that year, I saw a temporary altar had been put up, hidden behind the sculpture, laden with blue eggs, candles, and so on, tended ritually by a white-clad follower of what in Guyana are often called spiritists, but I suppose in other parts of the Caribbean might be called followers of spiritual baptism. It was August of that year, the most intense month of libation ceremonies, and thought to mark the historical period of a visit to that er area by Cuffey and his followers when they hoped to negotiate successfully with the colonizers. Offerings and libations at the monument aren't uncommon, and they conflate its significance um, for national and religious community. Now, the Afrosyncratic beliefs focus on the monument is quite consonant, it seems to me, with Philip Moore's personal philosophy of what he called God-manliness that drew from his membership of the Jordanites and the Pan-African framework that he promoted through attempts to, I quote Philip Moore, represent the African man in all his spheres. By that I mean Africans living in Africa and those who are the descendants of slaves in the Caribbean, America, Latin America, Canada, and Britain, anywhere they've traveled and settled down. Now, I've brought to these two artworks together for a kind of specific analytical purpose that speaks, I think, kind of speaks to art history and speaks from art history as a discipline. Ostensibly on the same theme, the works were made to do different sorts of work. Their historical importance before and after Guyanese independence is contingent on the place and circumstances of their execution and their conditions of visibility. Whether, um, those, whether the works were temporarily withheld or, by contrast, proudly unveiled. But only through more subtle attention to wider questions about space, circulation, visual scale, and medium may, I think, further a firmer understanding emerge 
of how political, religious, aesthetic, and social expectations, at least those, are formed, articulated, and then adapted in the field of visualization. If the visual is thought to be a way of disturbing the present by way of the historical past, as it often is, then processes of the commemoration of slavery are embedded, I think, in deeper, even divergent histories of art. In other words, my sense is that there's kind of much more than commemoration going on here in a context that reveals the sorts, or reveals the limits of various aims to make modern and contemporary art into a sort of client for public memorialization. And these examples, I would suggest, offer palpable attempts to maintain the uses of art as a memorializing practice, even when there's a kind of an obvious tension with the tests of creativity. Perhaps what's needed in this field of scholarship, I'm going to end up saying, specifically when it's focusing kind of on the period of modernism, is to test art's efficacy or effectiveness, and to think about how to kind of win it back or win art away from its commemorative uses, in a sense to kind of steal art away from history, or rather away from the expectations of its commemorative efficacy. Okay, what on earth do I mean, you're probably wondering. Well, let me explain, and um, I'll go into it in more detail. Well, much of the agency for Aubrey Williams' revolt painting rests on the fact that he chose painting as its medium. <laughs> okay, this is, this is the line I'm going to be arguing, um, so bear with me. Williams would have known that by the 1960s, painting was no, no longer the sine qua non of modernism. And that status, in the Caribbean at least, had been kind of superseded by the turn towards sculpture and time-based and contingent forms of spectacle. So we think about all of those kind of um, you know, post-war uh, developments in dance and theatre and carnival, steel drumming, calypso and so on, and how those sorts of performances also intersected with um, the writing of literature. Williams' wider art practice was all about the subversion of mid-century high modernism centered on abstraction. Here's a good example um, of work that um, he kind of continued to produce um, up into his death in 1990. For his 1960 intervention in Guyana, he chose painting because of how it harked back to the older colonial order and was a form of address and a context of display that was understood and accessed by an elite colonial audience. I think this is what he was doing. He was kind of trying to choose the very thing that spoke to a certain kind of elite notion of, of, of visual art. Turning this anachronism on its head um, involved William's self-identification with the enslaved man that it pictured. And I made quite a lot out of this in some of my writing. The ways in which the kind of the enslaved figure is in some ways um, a surrogate, if I can use that word, for Williams, and the way in which he's kind of swapped his paintbrush for a weapon. The subject matter that then is both 1763 and 1960. I mean, um, we need to bear in mind that it says just revolt. It doesn't give us a date. That's, that's my date about that. In other words, the painting asserts the righteousness of the rebel and the anti-colonial activist by virtue of a kind of choreographic arrangement that places the viewer of places um, us in some ways behind the enslaved um, rebel and behind the artist. In other words, kind of in, in support of their trans-historical struggle. In Philip Moore's monument, 
self-identification emerges again, but in a slightly more complex way, and in, in a way I think that speaks to the national self rather than the individual. I know this is a theme that's come up quite a bit, isn't it? especially today. Partly this is attempted by virtue of the medium specificity of sculpture, which doesn't presuppose the single viewpoint of William's painting. I mean, sculpture just doesn't do that. More in a sense has exploited what the art historian Alex Potts calls the instabilities that's his word, of our perceptual encounter with works of modern sculpture. But there's a further sort of spiritual goal there, to offer an elemental form with which all Guyanese may identify. Philip Moore told the visiting writer Alex, uh, Andrew Sorkin in 1970, I quote, we're having a little debate about Cuffey's image not being too right, you know. He alluded to the impossibility of finding consensus about an authentic national symbol, as he put it, explaining, well, no real nationalist would revere Cuffey, really less if he's depicted, as I think he should be, as a rough, tough, unkempt man with matted hair. If we have to pretty him up, he said, we're ashamed of him, we're ashamed of our own, ashamed of our past. That Moore chose to turn away from depiction altogether in favor of a three-dimensional rendering of Cuffey is the fundamental basis for the monument, it seems to me. That such a turn was an enduring preoccupation for him is evidenced in Sulky's report of how Moore in 1970 apparently took out of his shirt jack pocket, if you know what I'm talking about, um, I quote, a cameo likeness of Cuffey, which he had carved. It's also shown, I think, in the repeating image in painted mud that Moore bequeathed to the Burroughs um, School of Art in Georgetown, based on molding <coughs> techniques that he taught himself while working as a tutor at Princeton. The debate over Cuffey's likeness and the theme of uprising is therefore contigu contiguous with a range of visualizing practices. Moore would find that the experience of producing the 1763 monument was, however, kind of ultimately unsatisfying. In 1996, the politician and author Rupert Rupnerein wrote in defense of the monument and tried to explain Moore's many disappointments with it, which focused on its public reception as well as the physical presentation, the elevation on a plinth, for instance, of the sculpture itself. Just to quote uh, Rupert for a moment. He said, it's, it's true that the popular re rejection of Cuffey, as he's come to be known and hated, has also to do with the fate of non-representational public art in the region as a whole. No Henry Moores or Barbara Hepworths for us, he writes. We like our monuments realistic, as recognizable as our next door neighbors. Philip Moore didn't intend Cuffey to be in the sky, he wrote about this disappointment to do with the elevation of the monument. Bring him to earth so we can share in his power. The public discourse around commemoration of slavery and resistance has condensed on the uprising of 1763 time and again in Guyana, thrusting visualization practices kind of to the fore. When the painting Revolt was finally shown in public in 1970, a political opportunity opened up for Chedi Jagan, leader in opposition of the People's Progressive Party. A report in the Sunday Chronicle that year told how, I quote, Dr. Jagan said that it was the PPP government in office, but not in power, which insisted on the Aubrey Williams painting Revolt being exhibited, by which point you could kind of argue that you know, the painting had already, the meaning of the painting had already uh, notably changed. 
Anyway, he then says, it then found a resting place in the public free library, eventually. As it was, he says, that the PPP, during the early years of the annual History and Culture Week, drew coffee from his unknown resting place into the proud pages of Guyanese history, end of quote. In the 1970s, sculptural meaning in the urban space of Georgetown was obviously a live issue. Jagan pronounced on the removal of um, the statue of Queen Victoria from the lawns of the law court, and I quite like the way he puts this, he says, it had therapeutic value for the nation and the individual. <laughs> the examples I've given are testament to this, okay? So two kind of related controversies over attempts among artists to draw parallels between an 18th century episode of resistance to the system of slavery and then the conditions of the present day. And they show how circumstances for visualization in the 1960s were distinct from those of the decade that followed. I'm trying to differentiate between them a little bit. Revolt, the painting Revolt, issued from a painter based, uh, based in London who turned to the history of slavery to galvanize anti-colonial feeling in British Guyana, at the same time provoking a kind of proprietorial response among the colonial authorities. By contrast, Moore's 1763 rebellion belonged to post-colonial Guyana and its politics of nation building. And in that later work, no longer is the armed rebel kind of confronting the slavers and planters, nor does the monument repeat Williams sort of calling to the, the interpolation to elite culture and the genre of European history painting. Rather, Moore puts himself entirely outside the dilemma over whether to show shackles or manacles that are broken or unfastened. And he neatly kind of sheathes the weapon. Um, it's quite dark, but you can see it. The weapon of armed struggle. The formal codes of this uprising are obscure. An elaborate system of body markings like some futuristic armor. The animals held confidently in the hands. The speaking yet silent mouth. This is Moore's attempt to normalize a sort of realism that was grounded in a private language of motifs and figural proportions that had nothing to do with academicism. Gone is the antagonism towards colonial rule and the didactic appeal for independence that underscored the painting revolt. And so too as any supporting information, such as sticks, such as sticks of sugarcane or colonials. Indeed, the standard iconography of uprisings and destruction, which seems they often seem to include the burning house and the cane fields, and indeed the ubiquity of fire, is physically kind of out of the question in um, this sculptural um, composition. I mean, indeed, the kind of the illusionism of painting, um, you know, is needed in order to convey the immateriality of fire. So you, you just can't do that in a sculpture, okay? obviously. It doesn't lend itself to sculpture at all. And it was with that kind of in view that you know, we called that, that, that exhibition at the Walker Art Gallery Atlantic Fire, because we were looking at you know, how Williams had treated this matter of illusionism and, and, and naturalism um, and some other uh, more uh, kind of modernist preoccupations with um, fire in his canvases. Anyway, I won't go into all that now. Because it's, it's on this kind of last physical or material point that I just kind of want to conclude. I realize it's been a long day, so I'll get on with it. 
The point, that is, about how one or other medium of modern art compares in delivering on the expectations of artists and their audiences in the process of commemoration, I would propose that we settle for the idea that each medium does its own work according to its means. And indeed, to be more properly kind of evaluative and self-reflexive in understanding the demands that are placed on artworks um, by the public, uh, their publics, their audiences, those who commission works of art, and also, to a degree, their artists. This is what I'm, I, I would suggest. We kind of go back to that first principle. Why is so much um, de being demanded of, of artworks uh, in the first place? And how are those expectations kind of borne out, if you like, um, in certain examples? In other words, why is so much belief invested in the agency or the efficacy of artworks? And is it kind of justified or honored um, in the reach in the actual sort of historical cases um, such as these. Is this sort of belief, um, you know, uh, an attitude or a set of values um, or something that's peculiar to the modern day, I would wonder? If so, where did it begin and kind of where does it or where will it end? And is this belief kind of peculiar to the whole practice of visualizing slavery? It seems to me a kind of a fundamental question. Um, what's being demanded of the visual in, in bringing it together with uh, these practices of commemoration. Um, I'd suggest, in fact, that it's not uh, unique to, to these practices at all, um, but that it takes on a certain kind of style or character here, nonetheless. At what point, I wonder, does the pictorial or the sculptural imagination sort of pull apart from or misaligned with the historical imagination and processes of memorialization. And I'm suggesting then that a kind of, maybe I'm summing up so many of the conclusions from the papers, but I'm suggesting a, that you know, a more evaluative approach about what works of art can really do um, um, would be useful. I mean, never mind you know, blind memory, um, there's a sort of blind faith in art to do the work of memory, yeah? And to, to express that though a bit more kind of positively, there's always, it seems to me, with creative practices of visualization, a kind of an excess or a potential for unexpected outcomes, um, sort of, let's call them errant significations, um, and for art to kind of assert its own sovereign materiality, if I can use those words. Um, and it seems to me these are kind of yeah, fundamental questions um, for, for a conference like this. I know you have been sort of raised, but, um, but there we go. Let me wrap up. All of this, it seems to me, is, that's to say, settling for the idea that each medium does its own work, is central for any critical review of how artworks are positioned in relation to histories of slavery and how those works of art in turn kind of position their artists. In a sort of recuperation of an outmoded creative form, Aubrey Williams continued to be occupied with painting in the face of a more public and often uh, more public and often temporary productions, such as performance or sculptural production. In the northern metropole, in the words of um, the uh, art historian critic Michael Fried, painting was at war with theatre and theatricality in the search for an authentic modernism. It was, it seems to me, a kind of long front 
that war had a long front that extended to the Caribbean. On the other hand, Philip Moore was so concerned with authenticity that disavowing European representationalism would then subject his monument to public imputations of failure. So there's a, yeah. In this expanded geography for visualizing slavery, what comes to count, it seems to me, is the effort to transcend not the contingency of the subject matter, right, what's being represented, but the materiality of art itself. Certainly these works from Guyana are a key contribution to the politics of anti-colonialism and its uses of the past through commemoration of an uprising during slavery. Certainly they are. But they're also a focus for understanding why visual art during modernism comes under pressure and is tested and changed through that process. The events of 1763 and Berbice, once brought into the 20th century, became a pretext for trying to understand the creative possibilities of figuration. But memory has an uneasy relation to the media of painting and sculpture. The imperative to commemorate histories of enslavement and resistance it seems to me is at its most fascinating when it involves artists who are engaged in the challenges of visualization itself. And I'd argue that the matter of what is an acceptable way of remembering the past is sort of quite a peripheral one. There's a far more central issue of how an unacceptable past can make the differences seem clear between one sort of art and another in the modern Caribbean. I'm going to start there.